Michael and I have been emphasizing this all week. Uh, that is a, a frame of reference that, uh, in a sense, is free of context. That is, in, in any place at any time, you can wake up to what's happening to you. It doesn't require a special place or time. And it's also possible to learn in that moment. You can be in a telephone booth, be in a laundromat, can even be on your cushion. It's not reserved for special places. Um, and that attitude is the hardest one to learn. That what we've been emphasizing is not so much hankering after and running after uh, states that you hear are very, very good, only natural to do that kind of running, because we're suffering and we'd like very much not to suffer. And what's being emphasized is not so much to get to some place in particular, but to be with where you actually are, learning how to be with the actual facts of how it is for you in this moment. To be fully in contact, intimately experiencing what's happening to you. Um, and the formal practice continues as mentioned, it's very easy to when we emphasize daily life uh, for the sitting to become neglected and for retreats to become neglected. That would be, I'd be sorry if that happens because that's not what we are uh, aiming at at all. Uh, so when you get home, I hope you continue your sitting practice. Typically, unless you've been at this a while and you're uh, quite independent or the love of it has uh, been with you for a while, it's not always a matter of time, uh, we need some support. We need the help of our friends. And sometimes even pressure, pressure of schedule of other people. And then when we're on our own, the time just fritters through our fingers. And we find so many different ways uh, to not sit. Uh, or, if you're drunk, or to not do walking. Formal practice is what I'm talking about. Um, you may find when you get home that you understand what's being said and you intend to have a regular sitting practice. And I would say that the continuity is more important than sporadic sitting for an hour and a half or two hours in a very dramatic way and then dropping it for a week and then another four hours sometime. And uh, just the steady. This, uh, this approach to practice, uh, where living and practice uh, are inseparable, I think it's helpful to see it as a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a lifetime's work. Because finally, there's how to die. Now, some of you seem very, perhaps you think you're very far away from it. And I hope you are. But none of us know. We're all comrades in aging, sickness, and death. By the way, that's a very good reflection. If you get all upset about someone, just understand we're all in that same boat. Just look at them. In the Thai forest tradition, they would look at wild animals if they were out in the wild, the yogis, and uh, sometimes there'd be a tiger there. And they'd, uh, one way to contain their fear and to also calm the tiger down was to look at the tiger with love and realize that you and I were comrades in aging, sickness, and death. Um, so if you can get into marathon mind instead of sprinter's mind, I think you'll find it helpful. Sprinter's mind burns out very quickly. You want some quick, spectacular, romantic results. And a lot of practice is blue-collar work. 
just get a denim shirt, roll up your sleeves, day in and day out, coming to the moment, falling asleep, waking up. Um, and so typically the length of time becomes a, a, a question, especially for those of us who are very new. And I could just say an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. That's one way to just finish. Let's move on to the next subject. Or 45 minutes or some 40 minutes. Uh, I don't know where those numbers come from. Um, and as you know, we're emphasizing learning. Uh, find out what is reasonable for you. I mean, if you can sit for an hour a day, great, or longer. But sometimes uh, at 20 minutes or 25 minutes, the sip after that is a waste of time because it's, uh, it's so difficult for you. It's so grim uh, that you won't be doing it soon. So find out what's reasonable. I don't mean a minute and a half. You know, some 20 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever it is. I, no numbers. And then go a little bit beyond that. Challenge yourself a bit. If it's 20 minutes, make it 25. Uh, and then let that grow naturally. And if, if, if you take to this, it will. It'll grow naturally. Uh, so some try to protect some time each day to sit. There's a, a kind of pattern that uh, many of us have seen over the years. To begin with, you try to fit your, let's say, you agree and you want to have a regular sitting practice. And we try to fit that in our existing schedule. And uh, we try to find ways uh, with a shoehorn to kind of squeeze it in here and squeeze it in there, chop a little off on this day. And, and I, that's understandable. Uh, if the practice starts becoming something that you value, not, not that you think you value or that uh, the Buddha said or someone else said, uh, the emphasis starts to shift, I feel, that you start trying to arrange your life wherever you can uh, to protect those times of sitting. It's no longer seen as a luxury item. You understand that uh, I think it's always been uh, a required, a very important activity for a human. Uh, to, to pull back temporarily and to sit quietly with yourself and to just each day, it's a great way to start the day, however long you do it for, and just sit and be with yourself before the day begins. Uh, in our times, which are pretty hectic and could say crazy, then again, if you read the history of uh, the world and certainly Buddha Dharma, it's always been crazy. Uh, but the stakes seem higher now um, so try to protect your formal practice, however, and let it, however you do that, and let it grow naturally for you. Uh, some days you won't feel like sitting. Uh, don't march yourself at gunpoint into your, to your cushion. Uh, it's not cod liver oil. It's you um, taking care of yourself, setting aside some time where the only thing you have to do is attend to how it is for you, how how life is, how, it's, how it is being alive for you right at that moment. And sometimes there is resistance. One way to kind of soften it is to pause with the resistance. Let's say you're in the kitchen and it's time, you've uh, the appointed time to sit. And you feel this tremendous resistance and the mind starts making up all kinds of other nice things to do that are, it would prefer to do. Uh, feel the resistance. Don't try to overpower it necessarily. Feel it, let it happen. Practice with it. And then typically it softens. 
and then ease your way to the cushion. Now, if you only sit when you feel like it, you're only going to get to know the mind that, that likes to sit. There's more to the mind than the mind that likes to sit. There, we have many, many minds. A few questions came up over the retreat about that. Uh, how many minds we have? Which one? How many voices? Uh, look to my heart. Which heart? Uh, now, it, it can get clear, of course, and that's why we're doing all this. But to begin with, uh, when you pay attention, you may see there it's like a committee of discordant voices with very strong agendas, not necessarily all going in the same direction. Uh, so one advice that was given to me very early on by a Korean Zen master, Sung San Sanin, may he rest in peace, uh, was keep the mind that decided to practice. In other words, of all the different minds, stay with that one. That's the one that will really help you. The other ones, you already know them. They're okay, and some are not so okay. Uh, and bring that mind, the mind that decided to practice, into whatever you're doing next. Uh, so that the formal practice is something you have to work out. Uh, if, if there are sitting groups near you, that can help tremendously. We've seen that over the years. Uh, coming to retreats it can be very, very helpful. Perhaps you know that now. I know many of us do know it. Uh, so it's not that you've outgrown this. Uh, try to see if you can make it a part of your life because it can play a, a very powerful element, a very powerful, it can be a very powerful force in your life. The problem becomes when we set formal practice over and above <clears throat> the rest of our life. That's what we've been trying to emphasize. Not to diminish formal practice, but to understand that most of our life is not formal practice. And so, it's just common sense. We have to learn how to take care of the rest of our life. Uh, and if we don't, how can we really expect uh, a whole lot to come from that? If the only time you can be happy is at a special place or do this awareness practice, either in your home or a place like this, you can become like a hothouse plant uh, where that's the only time you can be happy. And then you walk out into that dreaded world you know, noisy and dirty and all these meat eaters, and, you know. <laughs> and they vote for the wrong candidate. And <laughs> yuck. Uh, and then you run back to your cushion. Ah. <laughs> okay, run back to your cushion. But we're learning how to... Is it possible to be sane in an insane world? Uh, what we're saying it is. I'm not saying it's easy. We're trying to develop inner strength. Outer strength is paraded all over the place, muscles and uh, brain power and all the rest of that. Inner strength is scarce. And that's what we're developing. We're developing our inner resources. Uh, and that can enable you to not only take care of yourself in difficult times, but actually be of benefit to those in your life. You don't even have to make a big project out of it. If you take care of yourself, you will be a better influence on those people in your life. Um, again, we get to attitude. I would say one metaphor that might help you, since we've been working with the breathing a lot for this past week, is the metaphor of, of the inhalation and the exhalation. Uh, if you can view your daily life, let's say you wake up, and whatever is the first thing you do, let's say you start washing, then fully inhale washing up. Fully do that. Give your full attention to 
whatever you do, showering, etc. When that's over, exhale it. It's over. Let that go. Move on. What's next? I don't know. Fully enter into that. Exhale what's done. That's over with. When that's over, exhale that. So you, there's sp- See, when we breathe, the exhalation plays a vital role. It's, what's, it's dead air. It's uh, actually toxic. We don't need it anymore. We did need it. And it played a vital role in keeping us alive. Now it's gone, and it makes room for fresh air to come in. That simple dynamic is what a bit of the logic of what we're talking about. Do each thing wholeheartedly. We, we talk a lot about being responsible. Responsible means being able to respond fully. And we're learning how to do that. If you pay attention uh, and open up to life, hard as that may be to learn how to do or even to do it even when you do learn, um, we're suggesting that that is, uh, may turn out to be uh, a far superior way of living because this is, the, this is the way it is. It's actually, planet Earth is exactly this way with everything that's going on. This, these are the times we live in. Oh, I wish I was in ancient Greece, ancient Athens, so just going through the streets having dialogues. <laughs> you know. Uh, this, is where, this is where we live. And the sooner we open to that, in other words, how is one to practice and to live in this situation? And do it wholeheartedly. Sometimes we don't... In other words, what I'm suggesting is typically there's a correct action in a given situation. Somehow the situation has some intelligence built into it. If you're driving a car, drive a car. Anything that interferes with the ability to drive a car, obviously not wise. Okay. But it, it keeps being like that. In other words, w- what's correct action in this situation? Now, sometimes we don't know. Pause. It's okay not to know. It's not a criminal offense. Pause and uh, look carefully. Look into yourself. F- feel the confusion or... Uh, you're anxious because you really don't know uh, what to do or say or whether to go or whatever. And very often out of that comes some clarity and then you do what you can. When that situation's over, exhale it. Make room for what's next. And move through the day as fully as you can, uh, breathing in this sense, in and out, uh, and see if that isn't a good way to live. Um... I got a fair number of notes, I think four or five, all of which were said in different ways, but they're about a people who are a real problem in the workplace for you. Those of you who wrote the notes, you know who you are. Okay. And I tried to, I went through, uh, if I could find, you know, you would describe them sometimes quite vividly. Sometimes they were a boss, sometimes a co-worker. Some, and, uh, and I assume that five people, four or five said it, like sometimes, whenever there's a criticism, I assume that very often that's representing many more people on the retreat who feel that way as well. Could be. Um, I couldn't find a Pali word or a Sanskrit word, at least in my limited vocabulary, for what you're talking about. Uh, but there's a, a Yiddish word, it's called nudnik. <laughs> <laughs> And there's an English word, pain in the butt, <laughs> or worse. Yeah. Um, and all the notes had this in common. Basically, what reading between the lines you were saying, 
uh, oh, one person put it this, tell me something to make it easier to go back to work on Monday. Uh, like, so I can make this person go away, or kind of, they'll come in Monday and be totally transformed, and hi, how are you? How was your retreat? You know, uh, if I had something like that, I'd use it for myself. I don't, I don't. But you see, here's why attitude is so central, really important. And it's the heart, we're trying to develop a new way of looking at your life, a new way of looking at relationship to everything, including relationship to what we call personal relationship. Um, in the 20s and 30s, there was a, a Russian a philosopher named Gurdjieff, and uh, he uh, had a school. It was A lot of his teachings very similar to Buddha Dharma. He uh, took some of it from there and other sources, uh, self-observation, similar to what we call mindfulness. Um, and he had a school outside of Paris, and there was one person who was a supreme nudnik, who was driving everyone crazy, irascible, had a bad temper, uh, was demanding, uh, annoyed everyone, the, far and away the most unpopular person in the whole community, universally detested. And one day, this person left. Just they'd had enough, too. They, they felt it. And they just, without announcing anything, just left. And Gurdjieff said, where's Mr. X? He said, oh, it looks like he quit. He's gone. He went back to Paris. He said, he did? Gurdjieff ran after him, caught up with him, and paid him to come back. <laughs> Do you get what I, see what I'm, in other words, you have nudniks and you don't have to pay them. They're there. <laughs> because... That person can teach you more than Michael and I plus the Buddha. <laughs> but you have to see it that way. When they come in on Monday, oh, I'm so happy to see you because you push all my buttons. <laughs> and, and Michael and Larry said that you are just so valuable in my life. <laughs> Tears streaming down your cheeks. <laughs> I don't know how I could have... Why didn't I see this sooner? You're a blessing in my life. Yeah. Uh, but you, you get my drift. Yeah. So it's a totally, it's not that it's easy. And now, so then we get back to the, uh, an approach that was mentioned a number of times throughout the retreat. Relationship as a mirror in that we have reactions. Let's say this person who's difficult for you at work or wherever. Uh, when they're in your presence, you have a reaction. We, we can't help it. We're not advocating controlling the reaction to do an impersonation of being a saint. That's not what's being suggested. We're learning actually how to not do an impersonation of anyone and to learn who, who we are, honestly and accurately, from moment to moment. And that's the materials that we work with. The transformation comes out of that. The suffering is there in the tears, in the sorrow, in the irritability, in the despair, and the liberation is also there. That person at work, uh, all the energy that's trapped in your fighting with them inside you, and you're wanting them to be other than the way they are, in the, who knows what's going on in everyone's mind, that energy is not available for, to you for anything useful. And even if you're outwardly very polite and sweet and trying to make the best of it, inside you wouldn't have asked those notes, written those notes, if there wasn't something that's become like chronic. Uh, and take this more generally, not just someone at work. Um, how can we turn that around? 
the world isn't going to change. It doesn't look like it's going to change much. We can do our best to change it, to redirect it in good ways, and I think many of us in this room are doing that, politically, economically, every way. We're working on ourselves. We're the world. We're part of the world. Uh, so we have to change. How we take this person, has to, we have to look into it. And it's, again, not doing an impersonation, but seeing what they bring up in us and learning how to practice with that. Now, I think you know, you've had your moments, some of you more than moments, where you're able to be mindful of what comes up in you. And doesn't something change when the energy of mindfulness touches what's happening in you? Mindfulness or seeing energy, it's an energy. It's not just the word. It's not sati is the word in Pali. It's an energy. It's a very subtle energy. And actually, as you do it more and more and more over the years, the seeing energy becomes like a flame. It gets, becomes very, very steady and strong. And it is so helpful in life. I feel that often I don't solve problems that I have. I burn them up. I look at them and they... Pfft. So the more you do it, of course, the more that quality of mind, the more you nourish that quality of the mind, the stronger it's going to get. It's not mysterious. But when that energy touches, let's say, your reaction to this uh, trouble, troublesome person, something happens inside. Maybe at first it's not much, or you can't stay, sustain it for long. But if your commitment is there to practice with what's going on, rather than to get into the blame, justification, anything but looking at yourself as to what this brings up. And I'm not saying to do an impersonation of Mother Teresa, really. You have to start where you are, and where you are is where you are. We don't have, let's not label it anything. And then out of that, out of those materials, uh, freedom comes. Freedom is, uh, uh, release is right in the midst of uh, where, what we've defined as our problem. The first noble truth, in a way, says it all. If you haven't, those of you who are very new, a little bit of study can be helpful. Don't overdo it. You know, uh, or it's, you can read as much as you want. It's, the question is, does it contribute to your awakening or you just become uh, very knowledgeable about Buddhism? Uh, okay, you're a more interesting person at parties, but so what? Maybe you're a more boring person at parties. <laughs> First Noble Truth says there is suffering in human life. Who can deny that? But uh, it's looked at, the revolution in the Buddhist teaching is, is how we relate to the same ordinary experiences that every human being has. We're not different. The only thing that's different is we're learning how to relate to the same experiences, exasperation, disappointment, joy, whatever it is, but now with awareness, rather than either grasping at it and trying to hold on to it or pushing it away or all kinds of mind games about it, interpreting it, uh, condemning it, uh, explaining it away, anything but turning to our own experience. And so the liberation is the place of suffering. Those are the perfect materials to practice with. Couldn't be better. They're so rich and there's so much energy trapped in them. So how to turn that around, that's the big one. Okay, A guideline you got is skillful and unskillful. Uh, start becoming more sensitive as to what is beneficial for you and others, what is harmful for you and others. Let that guide you. At first, there's, there's what is called reflective insight. There's thinking in it. 
It's a kind of skillful uh, thinking about well, before you do things or experiencing and taking And, of course, it includes observation. And the clearer your seeing gets, the better your judgment will be. Eventually, the clear seeing uh, does most of the work. It's not like you have to keep thinking about it all the time. But to begin with, the precepts can be helpful in relationships which cause a lot of suffering. And finally, about that, and then let's have some time for us to, any questions on your mind? Um, Let me give you an example of working with what's skillful and what's not skillful, wise and unwise. Uh, Someone once asked the Buddha, can you give me some sense of how wisdom manifests in the world? And the Buddha said, sure. Uh, A wise person, uh, sometimes what, what is beneficial is very hard to do and not pleasant. But they do it because it's the right thing to do. And I would say that parents who really do parenting must know this one. Certainly mothers must know it. Where you do what's needed. It isn't necessarily what's most pleasant, enjoyable, or what you in a million years would want to do, but you do it. Okay, that's a mark of wisdom to be able to do that. Because typically uh, we so uh, cherish ourselves so much that we don't see it, see a bigger picture. And the other the Buddha said, is, is the opposite. It's sort of like when something is just tremendously beneficial, but it's harmful. And how do you stop doing that? Well, there we get into the area of addiction, of course. Uh, addiction to food, addiction to drugs, addiction to alcohol, you tell me. Addiction to gambling. Uh, even more subtle addictions. Addictions to knowledge. Addictions to your own thinking process. We've gotten lots of... Have you gotten rewarded for having uh, for a mind that thinks nicely, clearly, gotten degrees and earn your keep that way, get a nice salary for thinking, then uh, you can become addicted to that. And then that mind hears all this stuff about silent awareness and all that, doesn't like hearing that and understand that. But slowly, gently, with compassion for yourself, you can learn to balance yourself so that thinking, which is a magnificent human capacity, can be used when it's helpful, not and, uh, and not using us. Finally, be prepared when you leave here, those of you who are new, your first retreat. Maybe you tasted some stillness and calm and some happiness and you learned something. I hope so. Nice. Oh, before that. Perhaps you leave here and you conclude that I'm not cut out for meditation. It's just not for me. I gave it a good try, and it's just not for me. A pause with that one, hesitate, because sometimes a particular approach or method is not for you. But there are many different approaches to to practice. Even within Buddhism, there are countless ones. And so don't give up yet, because... uh, Meditation is, to me, uh, not something exotic. It's a very basic human skill. Throw the word out with all the press it has. It's paying attention to how you live and learning from what you see and hear and feel. Uh, what could be more basic? And the, the skills here, this technology has been around in Asia for thousands of years. Why not take advantage of it so it can help us live our life? So check that. Um, The other is, 
whatever has happened to us here has been helped by ideal conditions. The silence, uh, like-minded people, all of us pulling together. Uh, You know, it's seven days, the staff, uh, wherever you look, everything is organized to help us do what we've been doing here. Uh, It's a perfect environment, or as perfect as you can get in the human, or it's very good, let's just say that. Uh, when you leave here, the conditions start changing as your mileage ticks off and you get further and further, further from here and wind up towards Boston, towards Vermont, towards New Hampshire, wherever it is. Uh, as the mileage ticks off, the conditions start changing and you start getting irritable again or you're calm, you feel like it was a wasted week. I mean, where is my samadhi? I worked so hard for it. Um, because the samadhi, to some degree, is a child of the conditions, but it isn't a waste. There's something learned that stays with you. And wisdom would not suffer over that. See, wisdom, you don't need huge samadhi. to. Uh, wisdom can, can be uh, experienced or can help us in any situation. A leaf falls, you see it, and you get the significance of it. Oh, everything changes. Or you see that the mileage ticks off and you start, and you start changing and then you grasp onto, I wish I was back there. You start comparing it with being here, with going to work on Monday with this nudnik. And you just, you're really annoyed. And then you see, I'm suffering because I'm attached. I'm holding on to a situation that's over. That's wisdom. So wisdom doesn't demand red-hot samadhi all the time. And there are, of course, deeper and deeper levels of wisdom, some of which require a very steady, refined um, quality of seeing and learning. Okay, what's on your mind? Anything we can talk over together? Oh, Michael and I are, this is it's my conscience. Someone sent a note. I couldn't read your name. I hope you're here. If you're a writer and then you're having a sitting and suddenly some good stuff comes up in the sitting, should I um, stop the sitting, write it down, or should I keep sitting? What do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> but also, what do you think you're going to do? <laughs> you're not going to listen to us. I'm going to say, you can write it down after the sitting. You know, just keep practicing. You can always write, but you don't have that much time to just be with yourself. And people will nod, yeah, that's the right answer. And then when, if it happens to you at home, you'll get up from your cushion and go and put it into your computer or write it or something. But anyway, I'm giving you the, what I think is the best in general, there may be exceptions. So for that person, so we, Michael and I can leave as honest people <laughs> because we, we didn't take care of that note. Please sign your name more clearly, whoever you are. Okay. Uh, what's happening? What, what, what can we talk over together? Please. Yes. The concept of self-knowing. Yes. No, you, okay. See, you're, cycle, you're trying to figure it out, and I, I understand that. Let, let's start with the beginning of your question, taking notes and filling it. Let's say you're here. People do this, have a spiral notebook and full of insights about me, what I learned and all that. By the way, it's, there are some things that you learn. We're not banning, you know, some of it will stay in memory. 
What I'm saying is that's not what we're trying to do. See, what, what the emphasis is on the clear seeing in the moment of what's happening. But sometimes an important lesson is learned, and it's with you. So uh, do you see what I'm getting at? It's just that we're not setting that up as what you have to do. Now, um, your question about what, future? Yes. Okay. Self-knowledge is an accumulation like knowledge. And by the way, when you have a notebook like that, full of your insights, what is that about? That is about, that's your story. Who I used to be, who I think I am now, who I will be. Take a look at it. And our mind is a great storyteller constantly. And we live a lot of our life in the service of that story. Editing it, revising it, protecting it, condemning it. Uh, throwing whole chapters out, rewriting chapters, rewriting history, making up some incredible future, either in a nightmare or fantastic. So, but that's all, if you want to stay on that level, full speed ahead. Liberation is from your story, from attachment to the story. We have a story. No one's trying to kill that. Now, here's the hard part, because I'm asking you to, that there's, it's not in one given, mo- let's say, uh, self-knowing. And it, it's a, a, as you more and more are paying attention to what's happening in the moment, it's learned. Uh, there's a letting go. Those are moments of clear mind. Those moments grow. And here's the part you may have to take, I think you will have to take on faith. Far more valuable than your conditioned mind trying to always figure things out, even if you have had good conditioning. And some people have had... I've uh, been fortunate to have good conditioning, family, school, etc., and some not so good. Uh, this is not trying to improve the conditioning. This is to decondition us, to loosen and let go of our attachments. Now, that takes you to another dimension. Now, what I am saying, uh, I don't, uh, the only way you can test it is by continuing the practice. The clear mind that's empty, it's not based on your, uh, for example, to go back to what was said earlier, um, is something skillful or unskillful. Sometimes, uh, and that takes some thinking and some reflection to begin with. As the mind gets clearer, you, less and less is thinking needed. More and more is the, the seeing itself. Is in, it's a form of intelligence. And it will guide you in order to see what this situation actually is. And out of that comes more likely to come a response, not a reaction. A reaction is conditioned. See, all this probably sounds very abstract and dead, but I, uh, the freshness, when, it, when the awareness starts becoming extended, see, more and more can you live in that place. It's not just a second here or there. We begin that way. Now, it do, you don't develop, the, the thing that's mysterious is that it's not like you develop amnesia. If you meet someone, you can tell them about where you're from and your, where you went to school and all that. Uh, and it's not like we don't, we, uh, oh, can't think about the future. I went to a retreat. They said, no future, no past. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, but we're learning how to use the past and the future skillfully. So it's not as if, it's not training in, in becoming, a, it's not a prefrontal lobotomy. Um, but how you, see, otherwise, what I hear from your question is the premise that uh, the me that's being put together and has been put together by a lifetime of, of concepts and thoughts and experiences and memories and aspirations and yearnings and failures and successes and hurts and uh, on and on, and all in memory, and, and that what we call me, 
By the way, as you start to look at that, that's not going to stand up. It isn't what you think it is. I don't know if you've gotten a glimpse of that. Now, the whole point of liberation is from living on that level, which is fabricated. It's constructed. You've, and so, that, for example, uh, one of my teachers, the last instructions he gave me is, he knew I loved this teaching, and so he gave it to me in the calligraphy. Don't make anything, exclamation point. See, we're constantly making ourselves, inventing ourselves to ourselves in words and pictures, and, and that's holding it together. That's what we know. And, of course, there's some security in it, no matter how bad our story is or we think it is. But this is going somewhere else. Liberation is from attachment to all of that. Now, self-knowing is a moment of practicing. Like, I'm doing it right now, the best of my... I, I, I don't, I'm really attending to you. I'm looking at you very carefully. There's not a whole lot of... Th- well, I have to do some thinking because I want to remember what you said. But I do, I think. And um, it's fre- there's more freshness. Michael likes that word, and it's a good word. Freshness. You're, I'm experiencing you uh, in a fresh, new way rather than through the filter of all of my accumulated conclusions about myself and life. Now... It, I know we learn some lessons by living, and it's not like they go away, but sometimes the lessons very often that we learn from living, they become generalizations, and every situation is unique, and they're kind of a crude solution to a situation that when seen freshly, uh, may something else may come out of it, and it's not calculated. I don't know, does it make any sense what I'm saying? Well, yeah, you see, there is faith in the Buddha in Buddha Dharma. It's provisional. Uh, in other words, how can you do anything unless you have give it a try? So you have to have some sense that, for example, uh, in traditional terms, some faith that someone called the Buddha really did free himself. That that it is possible there are human beings who who are, are not suffering so much or even at all anymore psychologically. Everyone has pain, physical pain. Um, that can help you do those things, set in motion the act you came here and all the rest, so that you can find out. Because you can't figure it out in your head. People try. They weigh what's being said, and then they, they and it's the old mind that's hearing it, and, it, and then it's imagining what this new, oh, a mind that has, that's before thinking. And they're imagining what that would be like. And it sounds idiotic, you know, or helpless, like you're just wandering around, lost, you don't know what to do. And uh, it's quite the contrary. It's a, it's a kind of intelligence, the clear mind. You have to jump in and, and uh, see what happens. Okay. Please. Please. You mean the world, most of the world. I understand. I'm a pre- I'm an expert on this subject. The world, one of the worlds, leading. Michael's another. We all are, uh, because that's mostly. If you keep meditating, then part of what we have to learn is how to live in a world of non-meditators, and even making that distinction is a mistake. They're just human beings living here, all trying in their own way. But let me be more concrete. I'll be personal. My wife doesn't meditate. She's from another culture. She's a political emigre from the Soviet Union. So she speaks with a thick Russian accent. 
I'm vegetarian and a health faddist. She eats meat and some smelly Russian fish, you know, and, <laughs> and both inhabit the refrigerator now peacefully. They, you know, they live together. Originally, it was like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> okay. Uh, she likes to shop. She loves it. And she was very deprived in the Soviet Union. I take pleasure in helping her whatever, whatever small ways I can. Uh, and you're saying, like, you believe the consumer society, that's killing it, you know, like going down shopping and a, you know, all that. And I say, yeah, it makes her happy. You know, but that doesn't sound very Buddhist or Dharmic. Or, okay. um, what I've seen over the years, like with relationships, it's very common for one partner to be a meditator and one not. I would say it's very extremely common. Uh, maybe the dominant pattern. But it, it doesn't have to be a, pr- a problem. Um, if, you, if you respect the non-meditator's right to not meditate, leave them alone. And if they can respect your right, I don't, I don't know if it's an intimate relationship, but that's, it's in general I'm speaking about. Uh, their right to, uh, it's, if both respect each other, then it has a good chance of working in an intimate relationship. If it isn't, often it's something else that's off. It isn't about meditation or non-meditation, which is being used as a political football. So you have to look carefully. Now, let's say we, we enlarge it. Uh, throw away, I'm a, you see, and by the way, Dharma students are usually more intolerant than the non-meditator. <laughs> uh, it's a fact, you know, because we, we have this new thing that we've discovered. And it's very easy to feel superior because... Look how they suffer so unnecessarily. (laughs) You know, these poor people. You know, I just came back from a retreat at IMS. You ought to think about going. I have a few brochures. Would you like that? There's a website, you know, know, and they're looking. uh, uh, Maybe they're even happier than you are. Uh, And and especially if it's those of you who are new to this, you know, there's a romantic phase. You know, where suddenly you're born, uh, uh, born into something fantastic. And that passes. It's a marathon, is what I'm saying. And it takes stamina, and it takes the, uh, a long, enduring mind. It's like living itself. It's not easy to be a human being. Forget about meditation. Uh, I just want to make sure that, okay. Uh, so attitude is very, very important. Um, and mostly, if you study your reactions... I had a, tremendous problems with my immediate family. And that's where I, that was the battleground for me. That's where I learned. Just picture, uh, working class immigrant gets an advanced degree, becomes a professor at prestigious universities, and after 10 years drops out to do this stuff. Uh, can you imagine what my poor family, my immigrant hardworking parents, you know, to help me all these years, and my sister, my brother-in-law, every... They thought I literally went insane. I'm not using it as a metaphor. Okay. Um, and I defended myself at first. I was angry. Why don't they understand and support me? And I, it's difficult. But I, can't you see that I'm so high-minded? This is a noble endeavor, the, you know, the liberation, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, once I stopped that and I understood them, they love me. And they just don't, under, they want the best for me and they can't grasp this. But the times have changed now. It isn't, it's more and more, uh, it's okay to do this stuff. It's appearing in Time Magazine, Newsweek. We find out it's good for the brain and, you know, there's a light in the brain here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
So now it's okay. It's okay. Uh, okay. It is, yeah. Please. But you have to work on yourself. The world isn't going to change, or you're going to have a hard time. You'll use it to isolate yourself, which is not what it's meant to be. We're all just people. I'll give you another example, because this is an important one. Uh, I live on a street, and I've never, you know, there's certain kinds of small talk I've never been good at. And now, for the first time in my life, I live on a street, it's like a neighborhood street near our center in Cambridge. Okay. Michael and Ryan live down the street. And I'm getting to know my neighbors. Uh, they're not necessarily big meditators, to put it mildly. And the main, the main conversation is, how, warm enough for you? You know, <laughs> you know, cold enough for you? You know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, like, I hear it, don't get too comfy, it's going to freeze up tomorrow, you know. Uh, and at first I felt like, let's talk about the nature of reality, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I love it, I love it now. And I, get, I engage in conversations, and it's sincere, it wasn't at first, you know, it's sincere, and I realize this, this you know, it's a, we, we do our best, and they're good people, and uh, in, in fact, it, in one case, it went from weather for months, uh, it went to our mutual experience of being in the military, and I found this person has some real depth and intelligence, and their perceptions of, of military life were, were really quite something. Uh, so it took learning on my part. Uh, we're all just human beings. Don't get highfalutin just because you sit on a cushion quietly for a week. Please. Stress reduction, yes. I got it. They got it from the Buddhists. I know it. Well, they all got it from the same source. I don't care to. <laughs> no, let uh, first of all. Uh, I used to feel, because people were teaching, they do six days of uh, sitting in, out, in, out, and then suddenly they're big teachers. I don't mean to, I don't know what your background is. They may have an MD, PhD, some uh, social work degree, because they have a degree that's respected in the world, and they do a little bit of sitting, then they hang up a shingle to do this. And I used to feel like, oh my God, what's happening? You know, people are teaching mindfulness, like mushrooms sprouting all over, you know. (laughs) Then I realized I can't police the waterfront. And I went to a teacher of mine in Thailand, Ajahn Suwat, and I told him about it. And he just laughed. And he said, oh, this has always been true. He said, it's the same thing with the monks, even in the forest tradition. Say, like, some of the worst ones decide that they're going to teach. They've been with their teacher five years. It's a little bit more. And they decide that. And they're the ones who are most not cut out to teach. You can't police the He didn't say police the You can't control it all. Don't worry about it. Do your practice. Because what, what will happen is, if they really don't know what they're doing, it's not going to work. Okay. Now, uh, so I don't want to comment on, I don't know what is in back of your question that I might say. I don't know either of them 
in a way that would enable me to answer you intelligently. Oh, uh, uh, don't you think there are some? You, don't you know that yourself? Uh, serious, serious question. Have you found any benefits? For, you've been doing mindfulness. Has it been beneficial? Start with yourself. Has it been beneficial for you? Yes, and I can say it for me. And there are many... Uh, okay, I'll just say, sure, lots of them. That's why I do it. You know, it's, it's going to be quite beneficial. But what's in back of your question? You know, I mean, this, you don't have to tell me, but find out what's in back of you. Because I feel you, you know that. You're doing the program. You're involved in doing it. Uh, why do you... You know it works, and many people say it does. What, what is in back... Do you know? You don't have to tell me if you don't want to. It's more for you to know. You're, you're smiling. What? How about applying it to... Okay. Um, how about broadening it so that it includes everything? That's what we're saying. Bring it into every aspect of life. And the reason that we're suggesting it is that it might improve no matter what it is you want to talk about. Uh, therapists report that they're better able to listen to their patients or clients. Um, I, there's a, a firefighter who's reported that that's, it's been helpful there. People in relationships. I mean, I, I hear the benefits from other people, and I can see them with people who I've been working with for a while. So, and now there's a growing literature of scientific studies of it, I think, but I just don't know that literature. See, I don't need the Dalai Lama to tell me, or really neuroscientists, to tell me that beneficial is worthwhile and that my brain is, looks this way. Or it's, I already know it is, and I've known it for a long time. And I'd rather spend my time doing it than figuring, uh, figuring any of this stuff out, just personally. And I don't feel competent. To, I don't know the research on it. I honestly don't. But I think it has been very beneficial. I'm just repeating myself. Any other? Please. Sure. Sure. That my po- Different on externals, sure. On externals. Uh, it's a good question. I got. I'm. Yeah. Uh, I would say the word love is uh, probably is misused, and uh, uh, and we don't know what it means because you know, uh, honey, baby, if you leave me, I will. My life, you know, I love you, honey, sweet. You know, like it's used wherever you look. I mean, it's so. Uh, but I would say this, and uh, this is for me personally. If you pin me down, okay, why have you been doing it? What what have you gotten out of all these years of this practice? I would say, finally, if meditation isn't an explosion of love, finally, then I wonder what you've been doing. You better check. Uh, It's a different kind of love, though. It isn't sentimental love, which it comes and goes. It's based on gratification and you filling my needs, I fill your needs, and I'm not knocking that either. Uh, but there, is a, there are depths of what we could... Okay, this might help. You know metta, the practice metta? 
a little bit. For those of you who knew, we have a practice where you cultivate loving kindness so that you actually cultivate that quality I think you're asking about, uh, of deepening your ability to love others, yourself, and so forth. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Uh, so you're, in a sense, working from the outside in. And that has proven itself to be very, very useful practice. It's, uh, we have some retreats here that link, that uh, join a metta and insight meditation, where you cultivate that. And at our center, um, I've seen uh, that sometimes people have a very hard time practicing insight meditation, almost impossible but when they do, let's say, some substantial work on loving kindness, love for themselves, love for others, love for people at work, etc., that something happens uh, that there isn't so much negativity and uh, draining of energy, and that they're now then they're more able to really hear the instructions of wis- wisdom instructions and actually put it into practice. So I've seen its value, but there's a different. Let's put it this way. Okay. Many years ago, I was studying with a Cambodian forest master, Ajahn Mum. And I was leaving for, I think, a six-week self-retreat in some cottage somewhere that a friend, you know, in the woods, brought my own food and all that. And so before leaving, I'd been working with him, seeing him fairly often. Uh, I said... Um, uh, okay, Ajahn Mum, I paid my respects, and I said, you know, I'm leaving, I won't be seeing you for six weeks, I'm going to do my uh, self-retreat, uh, please send me all the metta you can. And he started, to. he said, okay, and then he looked at me and scolded me, and he said, oh, stop it. He said, you know you have all the metta you can ever want, and it's right in here. Uh, you tap, there's something, I don't know, you call it love, you can call it intelligence, you can call it the truth, these are just words. Uh, there's a quality of love that um, isn't fabricated, isn't cultivated, and yet both help. Uh, I see it sometimes now as like practicing love is like uh, a, a mother hen sitting on an eggs, like you know the warmth from the outside and the chick is trying to get out, and the two together can sometimes be, you know, a chick is born. Uh, but there, all the love, you, there is tremendous love in us. It's not psychological, in my opinion at all. And yet, it must express itself through our psyche. In fact, you have to learn how to express it appropriately. If I would just go up to anyone on the street, oh man, I just love you, you just, uh, that wouldn't go too far. And how I express it to my wife or uh, uh, to my friends is very different than other uh, expressions of living that might be. Uh, And then, but you see, yours is, I think that you probably need detail. Uh, you know, your, yours probably has a specific context in mind, does it? Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't, this is not the best way to do it with, in, in Macy's window, as they say. What? Uh-huh. Well, let me, um, uh, we're all, okay, this is even more personal but I think it could be helpful, for, certainly for yourself, to help you understand what I'm getting at. And then I think we'll have to, um, hey, let's close on this. Um, some years ago, my wife had, we all had a very, very deep loss. Um, my, my stepdaughter, her daughter committed suicide. Okay. 
for a loving mother, you can imagine. I know, Jack, I know you lost a son. And uh, it's very, very, I don't know it. It was a stepchild. I knew that this person for about three years, two and a half to three years. I still, but I, but what it did to my wife was, uh, I don't have words for it. Okay, so for, I would say three to four years, she was unable to give me any gratification in any, any way. And what I learned about myself, which was, uh, I was surprised, happily surprised, is that I, I, my love for her didn't stop. There was no gratification, though. We weren't doing things that are gratifying and even fun, just to go to a movie and have a good time together. Or have a, uh, we'd, she was just, it was crushing for her. And something came, and I, and I, I attribute that to my years of practice. I didn't consider myself a, you know, average loving person. I don't know. I don't have any grades for how loving I am, but um, whatever it was, something deeper in me, I was able to tap it, and it enabled me to, I didn't hesitate. There were no temptations to get, oh, God, I can't take this, I, you know, and, and then look for trouble with other women. I, uh, I mean, I notice I'm not blind, but I, I wasn't interested in doing that. Uh, and I, it was a breakthrough for me. I felt I matured a little bit. Uh, and I, I attribute that to your question, uh, to the, the practice which I had already started to have uh, on a fairly regular basis, contact with the inner richness that we all have. What we've all been saying is, this leads to that for you. When we say, be a lamp unto yourself, the Buddha said that, uh, self, be, take care of yourself, learn. You have it inside, but if you don't know it, you're going to still be dependent on outside too much. Uh, we humans have an extraordinary riches interior, and it's untapped. There's all this, all these stories, you know, the, the, the prince who has a fortune buried under his hearth and goes searching all over the world and then returns and finds out all along it was at his, uh, buried right where he lived. And there are a lot of different stories like that. They're all saying the same thing. Uh, the, the problem is, those of us who have, I would include myself, I didn't know there was such a thing. I thought the whole thing was to perfect my psyche, get a better psyche, a kinder ego, a better ego, a more uh, understanding ego, and so forth. And then this was all news to me when I was Buddha nature, original nature, and so forth. Um, and then once, uh, that, that, but what, that, so then if we don't even know there's a possibility, why would we do any of the things? We don't start digging to find out that there's a treasure in our garden. So the practice is doing that digging. Uh, once you tap it, you don't get isolated, quite the contrary. You can bring that to whatever your relationship is, your marriage or anyone, everyone. And that resource seems boundless. And that's why I say finally, uh, to me, uh, the fruit of meditation is an explosion of love. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, we have genuinely enjoyed working with all you. We're not just saying it's sort of like, yeah, at the end of every retreat, you're just the best group we've ever worked with. You know, like. <laughs> uh, you've all been very open, and it's also it's an unusual mix of 30 people, very new, and many of you have been practicing for years. It's sometimes challenging. How do you teach a group like that? If you say one thing, you lose some people, but then the others get bored, and then, and you know, so you have to find some way. But you've all been incredibly open in groups and uh, doing your best to help us along. So, 
I hope this is of some uh, use to you. A number of your notes had to do with is there, Michael and I teach at a place called the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, we do have a website. I don't know what it is, but you can Google it. Yeah. Okay. Could we have a, a moment of silence, please? My wife and I have fun now, just, just, so, <laughs> just so you know there's a happy ending. Okay. I didn't want to leave you with, you know, God. May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us.